Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. This is the third part of my conversation with Fabian DeMarco of Commercial and Construction Capital. In this part, we continue the conversation on the ins and outs of using non-bank finance. We focus on the inherent risks involved, why it's therefore important to consider using a broker, and we wrap up by returning to some of Fabian's lessons learned as a result of his exposure and specialization in this niche field. I hope you enjoy it. What I'm thinking is, uh, as you were talking, going through the process of somebody considering using non-bank capital, I'm guessing though that's where your value is invaluable because it's not like, say, somebody saying, I need to use non-bank lending, so I'll just go and approach them direct. You could use somebody like yourself who has the experience, knows the red flags, yeah. and can operate in as a buffer to sort of vet you know, yeah. the, the most suitable people for your clients. Without sort of trying to say, hey, look at me, everyone, this is why you need me. But the, the reality is that these lenders, their loyalty, I suppose, or customers are their investors. It's not the borrower. It's the investor. That's who they're. They're representing their capital. And then they're offering to invest it for a return. So their clients are the investors. It's not the borrower. So when a, a developer says to me, I'm going to save my brokerage fee, I don't need you. I've already got a relationship direct with this lender. So I'm, I'm just going to go deal direct with them. That's fine. You will save your brokerage fee. However, you now have, you're going to into a transaction where you have no advocate, no one representing you. You're, you're basically representing yourself. So unless you are a foremost expert on development finance and understand all the intricacies of it, I would argue that if that was their core expertise, that they would be brokers, not developers. By doing that, you don't have an advocate now. You don't have someone that will vet the indicative offer they they send to you and send it back to the lender and say, no, let's remove this clause. I want this clarified and all that before it even gets to the client. In a sense, they're, they're sort of going it alone, which to me is madness. If you're, if you're investing all your time and money into a project, to try and shortcut and save yourself 1% on a brokerage is, is kind of like saying to the architect, you know what, I've got a couple of crayons at home, don't worry, save your plans, I'll, I'll draw them up myself. It, it, it's, it's almost <laughs> yeah. the same thing. I always tell developers, build yourself a team. If you're serious about doing ongoing projects, if it's a one-off, by all means, cut, mm. cut as many corners as you can and save as much money as you can. But if you're looking to build a long-term business around your, your development, build yourself a team that includes accountant, lawyer, broker, architect, the, the whole the whole shenanigans. Build yourself a core team that you can work with because they essentially become your advocates. You get the best team and you get out of their way, which is, yeah, I mean, you know, which is the, the standard. It's, it's kind of like, okay, this is my site. I mm. need the funding arranged. You know what you need to do. Go do it. Come yeah. back to me. So then it's not a matter of the developer having to shop around and try and find, okay, I need to get finance. It's, it's kind of like right, I've delegated that, that task now. I know that's going to get sorted and on to the next task of managing everything. 
when you're referring to non-bank capital, given that there's so many different parties that you could potentially go to, just the fact that they're non-bank doesn't mean that it's apples with apples, is it? Yeah, that's right. I'll give you a classic example. A developer that comes to you at the last minute and says, I need to settle a site within 48 hours or I've got a notice to complete, they're going to take my deposit and I lose the site. If that developer has no idea about the private funding space, or even if he thinks he knows something about the private funding space, if you go to a funder that doesn't have balance sheet lending, doesn't have their own capital, they're not going to be able to do it. So what will happen in this private space is you might have someone that will say, yeah, we can do it, sign here, pay this uh, upfront fee, 10, 15 grand, and we'll have the money for you in 48 hours. Great, but guess what? You're going to sign, pay that fee. These guys are probably thinking, whatever. It might take us five days to raise it or 10 days to raise it. We can do it anyway. Then we'll just get him to get an extension and it'll be okay. What happens is that they try and raise that money. They can't get it in time and the developer loses the site. If you don't have the knowledge to know this lender here has balance sheet capital, meaning I know they've got money sitting in their account, which they will lend and then just go sell down the loan later to a group of investors. If you don't know which lender has that, then how do you know? So that's where the value of having that inside knowledge comes in. In terms of pitfalls, what are some of those, what can happen? I can tell you now that in the non-bank private space now, you've almost got sort of three tiers of lenders. And there is a group or a tier of lender in that private space now that are probably just as trustworthy as a bank professional outfits, they've got boards, they've got very, very stringent compliance processes, they they monitor everything, they do everything by the book, and they're a pleasure to deal with. Not all private funders uh, are like that. The second group is probably a combination of the first and the third, but probably more tiered towards the first. They're also very professional. However, they've got a standard set of conditions. If you don't meet these, they give you very, very little leeway, and then they whack you with default fees and things like that. And then you've got a third group who are just predatory lenders. They may want your site and they'll lend to you when no one else will because they want your site. And you don't know this, but you think, great, they're going to give me the money. But they will structure their documentation and their loan in a way they know you will fall over. And the second you fall over, they'll have someone ready to buy the site at a discounted price. But the scary thing is sometimes on the outside, all three may present the same. If I put all three lenders in front of you and showed you their websites and you would have a hard time if you had no inside knowledge on knowing which one is the one that's going to try and take your site. Um, Naturally, we try to focus our attention on the first tier of lenders where we're building good relationships with, we're understanding them, they have a real good growth sort of mindset around how to work. A lot of them are very commercial. If I'm a developer, I want a lender that's got a bit of structure, that's got some compliance, that's that does things the right way. Mm. Um, you know, Doesn't wear a cowboy hat to work. That's right. You know, I mean, you're, yeah. they're a partner in your project that's essentially. Right. So you, yeah. you want a good lender. If sometimes that comes with more conditions or a little bit more paperwork, then so be it. You raise a very good point there where you should be viewing the the lender as your partner rather than being an an adversarial relationship. That's right. You're both working together to realise a project. Absolutely. With that in mind, you've got a developer that wants to produce a project. If you were to get into the mind of somebody who's looking at deploying capital, what are they looking for? What What do they want to get out of it? Is it always just a return on investment or is there something else that 
goes along with it? Naturally, their their core criteria when when investing the money into a project or, or lending it to a, a developer is a return on investment. Um, that return or, or, or the pricing on that project is usually reflected by their perceived risk in that project. And, and the way they classify that risk, they'll take a look at the location of the security property, how sellable it is. Is it something that would appeal to the market if they need to sell? Who's standing behind that security? Who's the developer? You know, what, what's their experience like? Have, have they done similar projects or have they bought sites like this before? Mm-hmm. You know, how much equity have they put into it? The biggest red flag for a lender is someone that buys a site on an option. They put down maybe $50,000. They secure this site with an option. It's a two-year settlement period. So they've secured it, say, in 2019. The settlement is now happening in 2021. They haven't done anything to the site. They haven't got a DA on it, nothing. It's just let two years go past. Naturally, just with the flow of the market, instead of worth $5 million, the site's now worth $7 million. And then they go and ask the lender to lend against the $7 million and want to borrow up as much as they can up to the maximum LVR. That's a red flag because they're essentially almost asking to borrow the full amount without putting any capital in. So whilst value uplift is good, a lender wants to see skin in the game from a developer. So they will look at how much of their own money have they put into this project so far. And the reason being is exactly that point you said, they're a partner. So they're looking at this as a partner. So they're going into partnership with this developer. They're saying, we're putting X amount into this. How much have you put in? Well, you're putting in none. So when times get hard or this project maybe hits a bump, what's your incentive to just not say, oh, guys, I'm out. Mm, that's the 50, <laughs> you know, just yeah, let it go. You yeah. guys have got the first mortgage. You guys can take over. Having a developer that, that's going to put skin in the game and stand behind their project is, is a big positive for a lender. Being able to just demonstrate that is another big thing. Pre-sales is, is another thing. Naturally, as I said, in, in the private space, developers tend to sort of look for no pre-sales options. But as a project gets bigger and bigger, even in the private space, you know, when you start talking about 50, 100 units, unless you're putting in like 50% equity into the deal, which most developers won't do at, at that level, the lender's going to want to see some some pre-sales that demonstrates an appetite for those units in that area. Yeah, there's a little bit of debt coverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some debt coverage. It proves that the stock will sell and then what's the appetite for, what's the price point. So there's a lot of little things that sort of they chuck them all into this crystal ball and then at the end of that they come out with a, a, a sort of a pricing point mm. that they feel reflects it. With your involvement in those transactions, mentioned that you represent the developer to be able to sort of vet who might be best to look at that deal from a from a capital side of things. But do you also provide that value for lenders themselves in terms of being able to source who the best kind of people are yeah, that I, need that? I suppose to an extent. We don't mm. we don't act as an agent or, mm. or a representative of any lender. I guess where our value and, and the relationship with a lender comes is the way we present a transaction to them. So when a lender gets a transaction from CNC Capital, they know first and foremost, it comes in a structured format. It comes with a detailed credit paper, comes with uh, assets and liabilities of the developer, sign mandate. So all of the, the required documents, now that as they get into their DD, they may request other documents, but they know that they're gonna get a package. Now we follow this structure whether, like I said, I'm submitting a $100,000 
transaction or a $50 million transaction. If you were to look at the credit submission folders, they would look identical. What lenders get used to is great. When a deal comes in from Fabian, I know everything I need is there. Tick, tick. I read his credit paper. I get an understanding of the transaction. And it's nice and streamlined for them, which makes their ability to make a decision on the transaction a lot easier. So in that sense, we build up good relationships with lenders. An example is one deal we're working on now. The transaction, I know for a fact, because I've spoken to a lot of lenders about it, and they've seen it multiple times, which happens quite commonly in, in the private space, you know, developers for whatever reason, they they go to different brokers or they go to direct to a lot of lenders and then the deal ends up circling around. Yeah, you uh, see it and see the site over and over. And it ends up on the same desk. So this particular lender had said no to this transaction a few times in the past, but on this occasion now, we've represented it in a slightly different way. Uh, some, Some things have changed about the transaction. So we made sure we articulated that very clearly for the lender and they've they've decided to move forward with it. If you're able to to build up a track record with the lenders where you do things in the right way, in a compliant way, in in a nice organized way, they will want to deal with you. Sometimes they may receive a transaction that's put together like a dog's breakfast. It just goes in the too hard basket. It might be a decent deal, but it's too hard. They don't have the time to decipher the whole thing, so they just say no. Whereas if you package it and, and submit it in the right way, then the chances of it getting approved are, are much higher. On a deal that's a no-brainer, they're able to probably tell even a poorly packaged deal, they'll say, yeah, we can do it. But on a deal where it could go either way, if you don't have it packaged in the right way, which let's be, let's be real, in the private space, probably 50% of the deals would fall in that category. Uh, if you don't structure it in the right way and present it in the right way, um, it could just get, get a no. I just wanted to wrap up by taking a step back into you and with CNC Capital. Given what you know now and you've been in the game for a number of years, what are some of the rules that you've developed over time when you conduct your business? First and foremost, I'm always thinking long-term. So everything that I do, I'm always thinking, okay, is this for the better of the business long-term? That might mean sometimes turning away deals that on the surface look okay, but when you dig a little deeper, you know, this is not going to be a good deal. I want to be in business in 10 years' time and I want to be in business with a good name. By having that as a driving vision, every decision I make today is always viewed through that lens, which means that you're always making decisions that are going to lead you to that path. We touched on at the very beginning your priorities changing you thought getting into the business was a roadmap to getting really wealthy but with the priorities with your kids coming into it tends to lead into more things like flexibility so what has running your business enabled you to fulfill i suppose the most important thing that it's enabled me to do is control how i spend my time if you were to ask me you know, what's the one thing you would like to have control over? To me, that's time. Having a flexibility to, you know, take my kids to school every morning, be home at night to make sure, you know, I, I can count on one hand the amount of times that I haven't kissed them goodnight. So to me, that's very important. However, that being the said, I've made a lot of sacrifices to be able to do that. I don't have a constant wage that goes in every month. I get up early. I start my day at 3 a.m. 
that, that comes at a price. Yeah. So whilst I have all these benefits of being able to spend time with my kids and, and my wife and do everything like that that I like on my own time schedule, I make up for that privilege by working a little bit harder. That value for me, being involved in their life at a young age, is number one priority for me. I just make sure that I can do everything else around that. The greatest misconception in this whole work-life balance thing is that you think that you can have everything. So I, I'm of the uh, I'm of the opinion that you, you can achieve anything, but you can't have everything. That means you have a list of values and a list of priorities. And make no mistake about it, only one thing can sit at number one. The moment you become crystal clear about what that hierarchy looks like, everything else falls into place around it. It yeah. just becomes seamless. Yeah. It's when people are not clear about what that order is or they say family is number one to me, but they're out working and until all hours or they could be out for drinks after work, but they, they still keep telling themselves, I'm spending time with my family, my kids is my number one priority. They're just conflicted mm -hmm. or, or vice versa. They might be saying, you know, work is really important to me. Building this business is my number one priority, but all they're doing is just going out or, or, or just hanging around with the family or, yeah. or the kids. Yeah. So it's when you become congruent and congruent, uh, the way I like to describe it is your actions match your ambitions. Yeah, that's right. When those two meet and they and they align perfectly, that's when you get progress. Just to wrap up, with the benefit of hindsight, is there something that you would tell your startup self yeah. not to do <laughs> looking back at all your years of experience yeah. these days? If I could jump in a time machine and go back, I would probably give myself a piece of advice that my dad told me, and that is measure twice and cut once. Have a, have a look. Think about it. Think about that. Is that what you want? Be more strategic the way you do things. Uh, and then the last thing, which my wife told me, and that's follow your gut. So in the beginning, when I started the business, whenever I dealt with a lender, I, I, I was doubtful as to whether they were a legitimate lender or whether they were going to do wrong by the client. I always had a feeling in my gut about it. And, and when you trust that, I find that, you know, you, you always know deep down inside you if, if things are about to go pear-shaped, you get this feeling. Some people will listen to it. Some people ignore it. I found over time, if I could sit down with myself, I'd, I'd tell measure measure twice, cut once, and trust your gut. Fabian, thank you so much for uh, being with Pleasure. me today. This is this has been fantastic and a, and a truly uh, an informative session. So I feel like I've got a lot out of it. Oh, so, great! Yeah, yeah, me too. I've, I've really enjoyed it. This is the end of my conversation with Fabian DeMarco. I trust you got a lot out of this episode. There were a couple of really key points that stood out for me. The first one, in the current environment of ultra low interest rates, there's now an incredibly diverse group of organizations and people with a lot of money to get out into development deals. That leads me to my second point. The key is knowing where to look and who to deal with. If you don't know, then getting advice from an expert like CNC Capital could be the difference between project success and failure. And the final point is be clear on your prerequisites for finance. That'll guide your decision to go with one funding pathway or another, or even a blend of both. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a couple of seconds to leave a star review on your favorite podcasting platform. The five star ones are free, so please be generous. 
If you want to keep up to date with upcoming episodes, please click the subscribe button so you can be notified when the next one is out. Well, that's it from me for this month. I'd like to thank you again for listening in and I'll catch you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Business and Property Development. Join us next month for more insights from people whose business is property. To subscribe and listen to other episodes, head over to businessandpropertydevelopment.com.au.